don't say what? Dixon, when she comes in calling you a fuckhead, and don't you Shut come up. in here. You get over here. No. You get over here. All right. What? Don't, Dixon! What? I'm you do not allow a member of the public to call you a fuckhead in this station house. That's what I'm doing. I'm taking care of it in my own way, actually. Now get out of my ass. Mrs. Hayes, have a seat. What is it I can do for you today? Where's Denise Watson? Denise Watson's in the clank. On what charge? Possession. Of what? Two marijuana cigarettes. Big ones. When's the bail hearing? I asked the judge not to give her bail on account of her previous marijuana violations, and the judge said, sure. You fucking prick. We do not call an officer of law a fucking prick in his own station house, Mrs. Hayes, or anywhere, actually. What's with the new attitude, Dixon? Your mama been coaching you? No. My mama doesn't do that. Take them down. You hear me? Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. Discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And before we get into talking about uh, the the most recent film that we've discussed on this show, uh, and that would be Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, before we get to our recommends, which is usually the first time we do, we have to introduce our guest. And I'm very excited about our guest today, bringing a, a, a nice insight into the world of McDonough, and that would be Alicia Mendez. Alicia, how are you? I am great, and I'm excited to be talking about one of my all-time favorite writers and directors, so... I know I am too. And then we'll, we'll, there's like a bridge I want to jump across like right now, but we'll hold off on that. And uh, we will start with uh, the, the normal protocol, which is to bring our, our audience some uh, recommend for something they should watch. Alicia, what do you have for us this week? Um, staying in the same vein with Martin McDonough, he's done some, uh, he's written some other films, um, but my uh, other favorite of his is In Bruges, which um, it takes place in Bruges. And it's kind of an allegory about being in um, limbo. Uh, and they're not necessarily the best characters, but you really feel for each of the gentlemen who's in it. Um, and I don't want to give too much away. I just want to whet your appetite with an idea of Colin Farrell in limbo in a city. Um, and it's I laugh just as many times as I gasp. So, Yeah. Um, I, I recently was on an episode of a, a, a show that a friend of ours does called Cinemus that's in the same kind of vein. And uh, In Bruges was, he let me pick, and In Bruges is what I picked. And um, I, again, and, and we'll talk about McDonough and, and his style and the way that he, he blends the, the serious with the sardonic. And, and it's just, it's a great, it's a great film. Um, and, and the one thing I'll say about it, as we might talk about later with just how his actors approach his work, but that movie really turned around the way that I feel about Colin Farrell. It really was not until I watched that film that I actually considered him to be like not a film star or a movie star, but an actor. And there's a particular scene um, where he's, he's lying in bed and he's kind of chewing on his thumbnail. And there's one every fucking time there's one tear 
that that comes out of his eye, but he's not crying. You know what I mean? Like he's not bawling, but that it just escapes. And every time it it gets me. And I mean, if you like darkly funny movies, see in Bruges, but you're going to see some fucking amazing acting from everybody in it. Well, Brendan Gleeson's mm-hmm. in it. And it's funny that you say that, that the one tear scene, because I have tried, like literally sat in my house with the mirror trying to be like, I can do this. I can cry all the time. But that <laughs> like non-distressed cry is the hardest thing to do. I'm like, I, I'm not, I haven't got it yet. I just haven't got it. I don't know how he did it. Yeah, it was good. Like he just manifested it. Um, yeah, Brendan Gleeson's in it. Everybody in it is good. Yes. You don't ever have like a weak link that's in it. I mean, Ray Fiennes um, as the villain is the terrifying human who's really, you kind of want to be his friend too. It's just a, a really beautiful, dark and twisted show of um, these people. Hey, baby. No, no, stop. Sorry, that's my dog. Um, <laughs> these people who you wouldn't want to be in the same, you wouldn't want to be in their party, but you definitely want to be in the same restaurant when they're having dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Totally fair. Um, Ian, any, and Bruce thoughts before we move on to, to you? Well, not other than I, that's still one of my favorite memories of all time is, is literally like taking you to that was like pulling teeth. You were so resistant to wanting to go see that film. And then I think I showed you the trailer yep. and then it was the moment where he karate chops the little person and he went, okay, let's do it. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like the old Pickford in Bellingham, like not the nice new one, but the old shitty, like fucking hole in the wall theater up there. Yeah. That was great. That was a blast. All right. Uh, Ian, what do you have? Well, I have, uh, I also have a McDonough film, but uh, not Martin McDonough. I have a film by his brother, Uh, John Michael McDonough. Uh, He's directed three films as well. Those three films are Calvary, The Guard, and War on Everyone. Uh, War on Everyone is, uh, it's a bit like Seven Psychopaths in that it's it's not a bad movie, it's just a little bit forgettable, but the one of his three that really stands out for me, and I've revisited, I don't know, probably a half a dozen times since it's come out, is Calvary uh, from 2014. So I've got kind of a 2014 motif going here. I had Nightcrawler as my recommend last week, and now I've got Calvary. So we're, we're sticking in the same year. Uh, again, Brendan Gleeson, a favorite of both of the brothers. He was also in, uh, The Guard. Uh, so Calvary, for anyone who hasn't seen it, he plays a good priest, you know, in a time where, you know, we're very distrustful of priests. And that was the whole point of this film is to, is to take a good priest and sort of reverse the situation. You put him in an indecent world with characters that are always trying to push his buttons and are all very morally ambiguous. Uh, he has a daughter which comes who comes and visits him. Uh, she's just recently tried to kill herself, and so he's grappling with that. Uh, and at the beginning of the film, the first line in the film is, is quite uh, uh, breathtaking. A, a man comes into his confessional and says to him, I first tasted semen at the age of seven. And, you know, as we sit there blindsided by this line, he also says, well, that's a startling opening line. Um, And he's told by this guy that he was raped every day for a few years by a priest and that this priest is already dead. And he would go out and kill a bad priest, but nobody's going to bat an eye at that. But because the Brendan Gleeson character is a good priest, that's who he's going to kill. And he gives him a week to sort of get his affairs in order. It's a beautifully shot film with an incredible cast. Chris O'Dowd, um, I can never pronounce his last name, but Isaac de Bancol. Uh, and then uh, Kelly Riley plays his daughter. 
Domino, yes, right. That's Brendan Gleeson's son uh, has a very small role in that, and that is, I couldn't, I I would be remiss in trying to pick a favorite scene, but that is very, very intense. Absolutely love that scene between the two of them. Uh, but yeah, uh, great, morally ambiguous film. I feel like uh, I feel like there's a probably a little bit of one-upmanship in the McDonough household because it certainly <laughs> feels like. With the guard and with Calvary, uh, his brother John Michael is certainly trying to to one up him. So that's Calvary. I, you know, and and I know you've you've told me about the guard, and I just I just it's not made it to the top of my queue. But between these two now, I know I definitely need to try to get those further up. Well, it it feels like the guard is to Imbruge, and and Calvary is kind of the equivalent of of three billboards a little bit. Yeah, um, I like both of the brothers. I prefer Martin, um, but they they both have a, a fascination with redemption and flawed characters. Um, that is kind of my jam. That's my I, I like really flawed human characters where you'd be like, yeah, I probably know that guy. Um, only they're just the tiniest bit. There's that line of like, that's normal, shitty human behavior. And then there's that they just take that step over where you're like, oh, that person makes me uncomfortable, but I would still probably want to get to know them. Yeah, that definitely. And, and, and having, having, we talked off mic about this, but having reread a bunch of McDonough plays prior to this, the, the character seeking redemption and, and the flawed, the flawed leads who you like, despite the, the terrible things they do is something is a very a recurring theme in McDonough's world. Um, well, great. So awesome. Calvary that I, I am now very excited to watch some of, uh, John Michael's movies as well. Um, <laughs> my, my recommend this week is also kind of a dark comedy. Um, and this was one, this is, this is again, uh, fitting into a recurring theme of, uh, my wife hadn't seen this movie and I was very glad I was able to make her watch this movie for the first time. Um, this is probably going to come out of left field and I don't know if, when or if the last time you watched this movie was, but my recommendation this week is the 1985 classic better off dead. Um, <laughs> how did you, how has your wife not seen that movie? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know, and I don't really think a lot of people, this isn't very high in people's estimations of what I think are like the high school movies of the eighties. I think, I think John Hughes just kind of has this big overarching umbrella of, of those movies. And, and, and and John Cusack, while not unknown at the time of this movie, um, gets to shine. I this movie is so fucking absurd, and I think that's why it also doesn't register so much. It's not the the romantic comedy or the teen comedy that fits the the same bill that everybody knows. Um, for those of you for those of you listening who haven't seen it, uh, John Cusack plays Lane Meyer, who is this just average high school kid who was dating the popular girl who dumps him when she starts dating the captain of the ski team. Um, and so basically John Cusack is, is doing whatever he can to win her back, uh, unaware that the foreign exchange student from France, Monique, who lives across the street with this very absurd family, um, has sort of been falling for him the entire time. Um, this movie is is crazy. Um, I mean, there there are moments, there are three separate moments in this movie where John Cusack tries to kill himself because he is not winning back the affection of his girlfriend. That all end in very very hilarious moments. One of my one of my particular favorite moments in the movie is when um, he decides that he's going to set himself on fire. He's called into a dinner 
the the mother of the, of the family that lives across the street drinks this primer, goes to light a match, and like the uh, the dining room explodes, and we hard cut to John Cusack talking to her son, saying, "Gee, I'm really sorry your mom's face blew up, Ricky," um, which is just great. And and uh, of course, you can't forget the the recurring bit of the paper boy just wanting his two dollars constantly hunt, <laughs> hunting him throughout the movie. Um, I hadn't seen this movie in a few years, and it it took me back. This was my stepdad introduced was, introduced me to this movie when I was like thirteen, and I I I just fell in love with it. And I I think this is a movie I really hope people revisit because it is chock full of the most bizarre humor. And wonderfully 80s, the um, Everybody Wants Some song comes from this movie. Oh, man. I It's just it's just wonderful. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It is just full of crazy nonsense. Um, better Off Dead. Please check it out. Classic John Cusack. Classic John Cusack. It's got one of my favorite moments in any 80s comedy. The two twins that learned English by listening to Howard Cosell. <laughs> And John Cusack is thinking about, well, you tell me what's worse, speaking no English or only speaking Howard Cosell. Well, Ladies and gentlemen. Where, where he's with his, with, the, with his girlfriend and he's sitting there and he scratches his nose and she scratches her nose and has their inter- internal dialogue yes. of like, do I have something on my face? Do I have a booger? Oh, was that, did, was that them telling me that I have something on my face? Um, it's one of the, when I was little, I thought it was the funniest thing. So I would walk up to people and try to like touch my face to see if they would react to it. <laughs> It didn't work. People just thought I was a weird kid. <laughs> oh, great. So there you go. Okay, awesome. So those are our recommends this week. Now, let's start to tip our toes into the water of Martin McDonough and three three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, so this is written and directed by Martin McDonough. Um, we've mentioned the two other feature films in, in kind of passing conversation so far. In Bruges was his first followed by Seven Psychopaths, um, which he apparently had already completed this script when they were shooting Seven Psychopaths um, and just sort of had it on the back burner. Um, and then he actually, he won an Oscar before any of these for his um, his short film, Six Shooter. Uh, Alicia, have you seen Six Shooter? I have, I have. It's, um, it's very um, hard to explain without giving it all away, and I don't want to give it all away. Um, but it gets dark. It gets really, really dark. Yes. Um, uh, well, I guess people aren't going to see it, right? Um, I mean, I, they probably could. I think it, I mean, we could say enough where Brendan Gleeson has, I mean, his wife passes in the first 30 seconds of the movie. That's oh, what yeah. kind of propels it. So that's that's fine. And then he gets on the train. And I think that, that we, we could safely say that the, he, he happens to sit next to a particularly interesting character. Um, and they are sitting sort of uh, kitty corner from a couple who apparently have just lost their child. And so that's sort of the character dynamic uh, on the train. And then, and then if we want to, we could say, of course, with most of his stuff, shit goes crazy pretty quick um, and takes at least three, if not more, unexpected left turns that you weren't quite expecting, including the ending, uh, which we'll just say has a, a misfiring gun. Uh, might be yeah and like the couple that he sits with you don't know if they killed their kid or if their kid just died but you get the you get the feeling that they probably did but it wasn't on purpose like it's a very um the it's a very interest like the way it it keeps um shifting from who's to blame and who's the villain uh 
And then when it gets to the end, again, there's kind of like a, a slight redemption arc in it. Okay, baby. I know. She's agreeing with me. Um, <laughs> uh, at the end, the... I, I, without giving too much weight, it reminded me, and I had uh, just a flashback of, of Mice and Men with the rabbit. But, um, <laughs> that's, all, that's all I want to say before, <laughs> without giving too much weight, because I think everybody should see it. And it's a short film. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's not a big ask for you, but it's very enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I watched it. I think I watched it last night for the first time. And yeah, it's only 26 minutes. So pretty, pretty brisk watch. Yeah, we were we were trading texts about it because I'm pretty sure that I I don't even know if I'm here and alive because I'm pretty sure I died laughing during that thing, especially the the story about the the cow with the wind with the trapped wind just <laughs> fucking so killed fucking me, weird. and the fact and that he wouldn't let up the fact that the the baby in the picture oh, he looked like that fell off a Bronski beat, which I I don't know if if anybody is familiar with Bronski beat, but they are a fantastic over the top gay pop disco band from the mid '80s. I I was not. I was not, which is why a lot of that, the repetition of that went right over my head, which, which I, I will oh, say I was not laughing nearly as much as I imagine you were, Ian. Oh, yeah. Well, Small Town Boy is, is like one of my hands down guilty pleasure 80s pop songs. Well, there you go. There you have it. Um, so transitioning to the cast. You know, it's it's so funny. I mean, you could just list like the three probably biggest performances, but I'm gonna I got a huge list of people here. So, uh, let because I, I think everybody is fucking killing it in this movie. Oh, yes. So, like let, everybody from like soup to nuts, it's great. So let's start with obviously with with Francis McDormand who plays Mildred. Um, uh. Well, we'll get to accolades later. So, yeah. So, Francis McDormand plays Mildred. Uh, Sam Rockwell plays Dixon. Woody Harrelson plays Willoughby. Uh, Abby Cornish plays Anne Willoughby. That is uh, Woody Harrelson's wife. Lucas Hedges plays Robbie. That is uh, Francis McDormand's son. Uh, Zelchko Ivanek, who we will bring up when we talk about McDonough, because he has been in a lot of McDonough stuff, including the original Broadway run of a show that we will talk about here in a few minutes. Um, he plays the desk sergeant. Uh, Caleb Landry-Jones plays Red Welby, who runs the advertising shop in town. Um, uh, Clark Peters, who some of you will know from The Wire, or if you just recently watched um, Defy Bloods on um, on Netflix, plays Chief Abercrombie. Um, Samira Samara Weaving plays Penelope. She is the new girlfriend to John Hawks, who plays Charlie, who is the ex-husband of Mildred. Um, Peter fucking Dinklage is in this. Uh, he plays James, which is great. Uh, Carrie Condon plays Pamela. She is the assistant at the um, advertising agency. I will tell you right now, my unsung hero of this movie is Daryl Britt Gibson, who plays Jerome. He originally helps put up the billboards and has a couple of really pivotal lines and scenes in this movie. I fucking think, I think he's fantastic. Uh, Amanda Warren plays Denise. She works with Mildred. And then um, Brendan Sexton III plays, quote, crop-haired guy who was the person that they, initial, that they suspect may have had something to do with the death of Mildred's daughter. Oh, uh, did I leave anybody out? that you feel like deserves some love. Well, Nick Searcy in an uncredited role plays father Montgomery, who is in, I don't know. I start, I go back and forth. He might be in the best scene in the movie. 
That is a, his scene is a pretty good scene. <laughs> the the dinner scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I guess it's not dinner. He's just there. She's it's after she comes back from the pool hall and says that little guy wants to fuck her. Yeah, yep. yeah. The the culpa <laughs> the culpability speech, which is just as an oh, actor, yeah. I imagine a, a speech like that just has to be a gift. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yes. Um. So uh, we mentioned earlier, uh, this is the the newest movie that we've talked about um, in the latest edition of the book. Um, this is in it. It's from 2017. Uh, Martin McDonough does not have any other films in the book. However, before we get into accolades, I would like to talk a little bit now about Martin McDonough, um, who, whereas in, in the the world of film is fairly new, he's really only been in it for a decade, a little, a little longer than if you include his short film. Um, he's been killing it as a playwright for a very, very long time. Um, a, a list of his shows, just really quickly so we can get him out there. Um, he has something called the Linane Trilogy, which includes The Beauty Queen of Linane, A Skull in Connemara, and The Lonesome West. He has the Aran Islands Trilogy, which includes The Cripple of Inishman, The Lieutenant of Inishmore, and an, uh, an unproduced and unpublished play called The Banshees of Inishir, which is... Uh, uh, on its way to becoming a feature film. We don't know if the film is actually going to be a production of the unproduced play or something new with that title, but that's a thing. And then the other plays that he has written are called The Pillow Man, A Behanding in Spokane, Hangman, and his newest play is called A Very, Very, Very Dark Matter. Have you read that, Alicia? No, I haven't. I it, haven't. It is... It. It. I... The way that we were that we've kind of been talking about Seven Psychopaths, like yeah, it's okay, but you, it's not the best. Like that's that's where this falls, and it's like it's like a, a lazier Pillow Man. Uh, one of the reasons why I haven't read it is because uh, a friend of mine read it, and they're like, "You won't like it. It's it's not it's 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 not what you're used to from your favorite player." I'm like, oh, "Okay, I'll I'll wait until I'm real hard up for some new art, and then I'll read it." Um, but, uh, kind of gearing up for this episode. Um, I, I, when I was on that other podcast, I chose in Bruges on purpose so I could have it in my brain. We watched seven psychopaths a few nights back and I, I reread, um, all of the, um, the, uh, what is it? The Aaron Islands one. So the beauty queen of Lenane, skull and Connemara and the lonesome West. I reread the Lieutenant of Inishmore. And then I read that new play, the very, very, very dark matter. Um, Beauty Queen of Linane is in the Linane trilogy. Yeah, yes. And then oh, the, sorry, yes, yes. the Inishmore ones, the Cripple Inishman is in the Iron yes. Islands trilogy. Thank you. Yes, that is correct. Um, but uh, Alicia and I have um, uh, a nice, interesting history. Uh, we met when she cast me in The Pillow Man as Katurian. And so um, while I had a fondness for McDonough before being in the show, getting to work on a McDonough play really kind of uh, changed uh, my, my view of it. Um, so... I guess we'll just, you know, nice brief just theater tangent as we talk about McDonough. Alicia, when did when did you first read The Pillow Man and how did that kind of come into your your periphery? So when I was in college, I uh, I was in The Beauty Queen of Lenan and um, I oh remember my getting... God. You would have... Oh my God, I already got to stop you. You, you would have killed it in that role. Oh my God, I would pay money to see that. <laughs> then or um, now. I would pay... I, I, you need to be in that show now. Oh, but I want to, if I'm going to do that show again, I want to wait till I'm older and I want to be the mom. <laughs> I want to be the mom so bad. But I mean, I would, I would, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's again, like I say the word beautiful. Um, I have a weird definition of what's beauty. Like, cause there's just so much um, pain in the art. And so I think celebrating that um, dark part 
is really beautiful in, in um, when you see it in theater because it's all that stuff that you're, what I like about McDonough is it's stuff that you think on a regular basis where you're like, oh yeah, that that's a horrible person. Or you think it to yourself like, oh, I wish I could do that. But you don't because you're actually a good person. And McDonough just leans into that shoulder devil but he writes it in a way where his characters lean in and then you kind of get on the side of the character that's leaned in. You're like, no, I get I get why you're leaning in and you start rooting for them. It's like when you see a really good villain who you vote for, uh, who you root for in a movie or you're watching this play or you're reading it and you're identifying with these characters and it helps you look introspectively about your something inside yourself and if you took and if you take any one of his characters out and put them in a regular play or a kind of mainstream kind of thing, they'd be the villain. But in a McDonough play, they're just human beings being human, and you and and you find yourself really drawn to the darker places, but not feeling bad about it, and it lingers with you. Um, so Beauty Queen of Lanan, like I, Lanane, I was in that, and I remember. Uh, being that actor when we didn't have somebody who the the guy in it couldn't do the accent and I got on my high horse I was like no we're not doing this show if he can't do the accent and I had no power whatsoever in it um, <laughs> but uh, nobody had n nobody knew who McDonough was and um, I think I was the only person in the program who had read the whole play before we did it and uh I dug in my heels and the guy who, the director was just like, yeah, all right, let's, you know, actually get somebody who can do the accent. Um, and it, it's such a dark show and that's when I got bit. And then the next one I read was Pillow Man. And then I probably slept with it under my pillow for a, about six months, just thinking I'm going to have to do the show somehow. And then I saw it done very poorly the next year. And um, I was so like angry I've never walked out of a show but I almost walked out of that one like I stood up and like paced in the back um <laughs> and then finally uh I almost directed it a couple times before I got it at second story and then it just fell into my lap and it was perfect as a director you usually you aim to get 80 percent of what you want and I got 95 percent of what I wanted in that show so um hands down again like there there's other shows i've directed where people are like would you direct the show again i'm like i absolutely would and like would you get the same cast and i go no i'd get new people this one i wouldn't change a thing i'm like nope get all the get the band back together we'd do some different direction and i'd stage it differently but we'd get all the actors back because it was beautiful so uh i would love that <laughs> do like a 10th anniversary <laughs> oh man that that really should be a thing that happens that would be so great <laughs> well it's a show that's followed me um but when it's mentioned people are like oh my god i saw that show and um and it, it didn't run for very long we only ran for four weeks three or four, four. yeah yeah yeah. yeah, three or four. I have the poster. I can go look at it. It's framed. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but we only ran for three or four weeks. And um, it's a it's a show that to this day, if it's mentioned, people are like, oh, yeah. And or if anybody else does the show, they mention our show. Uh, well, and that's nice. um, they have a hard they have a, a high bar to stick to, like, get over if they're going to do it. So I'm, I, it's a beautiful show. If anybody doesn't know the Pillow Man. It takes place in a dystopian future where there's abuse and um, 
child abuse and murder and torture, but at the same heart, like creativity and brotherly love. Um, it's such a hard show to describe, but I could talk. I could make this show easily about that show instead of Three Billboards. Yeah, um, that's fair. Which we which we won't do. But um, but yeah. No, 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 no. That'll be another podcast that we do. Yeah. Um. Now, well, Ian, I I do oh, yeah. I do have some questions because I I didn't see the Pillow Men, and I hope you guys do an anniversary show. Hopefully, not as long as ten years, but you know, if you guys could get going on that, I would I would appreciate it. <laughs> um. Couple of questions and spo- massive, massive spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen or read it. But uh, how the fuck do you crucify a child on stage? Uh, oh, so <laughs> there. Uh, my original idea was it was going to be me because I'm a small human. Um, I'm only five three, so if I if I was on my knees, you could crucify me and it would be fine. But um, we got a. a the art the um, artistic director, so like my boss essentially. Um, he and I had a long conversation about it. And I frankly just didn't want another person on stage. Um, I didn't want to get the parents. So I just used my two cops as the parents with these creepy, really creepy masks. Um, and then uh, we, uh, Nordstrom's was closing down and they had these children uh, mannequins um, that kind of resembled, the face resembled kind of the mask that we had. And so we, it was just always up there. And then you pulled a cord and then it was revealed and we projected a child's face on it and blood. And it was a really creepy, um, obscure way to crucify a, a child. Um, because in that scene, the child doesn't speak. Cat does the whole monologue and says what the kid is saying. Um, and it, it worked. I think it worked better than having an actual person there um, because the effigy was so much more powerful than having a, a human being who you could see get down and off of the cross so well I, I love that that's a really great workaround other than trying because i'm thinking to myself like you have to i mean and i, I having never directed i imagine it's difficult to direct children and to you don't want to talk down to them and you want them to be a part of the conversation and you you want to trust in their intuition and and their maturity and so to to have them perform something like that i imagine is is going to be uh quite emotionally jarring on both you and the child putting a child on stage to do that i i i wouldn't feel comfortable um i work in education and so i work with kids every day um while i could handle a child i wouldn't want to put them in that position i don't think that would be um kind for them because really as an actor if you're a child actor that part is not a really demanding part you literally get up and stand up there um because to go through the tableau, I, I saw a really, really bad version of it where they did have a kid, but the kid was probably about 15 or 16 who in who reenacted all this kind of stuff. And um, what I found is it it took away from the from the monologue. So the in the if you haven't seen the show in the monologue, Cat um, is telling the story essentially of this little girl who um, is crucified. Um, because she thinks she's Jesus. And they talk about the Stations of the Cross, and these parents are really abusive, and they basically say, okay, if you want to be Jesus, we'll treat you like Jesus, and they crucify her. I've seen it where somebody does it Stations of the Cross style, and it takes away from the the imagination that people have, because the stuff that they have in their head is 20 times worse than what they actually see. Um, So 
we chose not to do it in Tableau. Well, I chose not to. Um, the artistic team that I worked with, they pretty much would have let me do whatever I wanted. Um, they they trusted me a lot with it, which is um, um, terrifying because I had some weird ideas for that show. And they all worked. Um, they worked exactly how I wanted them to go. But uh, the Tableau just didn't... I, I wanted the at the audience to have an interaction with it too and having that in their brain and is way worse than seeing what was being described that sounds like a really great way to go i i think i think mcdonough's stage i because i i did finish reading it uh just yesterday i think like uh mcdonough's stage directions are they they show a little more than they need to because he talks about you know the you know she's carrying the cross back and forth across the living room a hundred times until her legs buckle and break, and then when the parents have to put her on the crucifix, they have to bend her leg back into the right position. And I mean that's that's all really that's all really great. I'm just my mind boggles at how you would stage that word for word. Well, I think the important thing I, I it, when I see a McDonough play, like when you read it or everything. Um, I think he does a great job with making people uncomfortable. And I think that discomfort is what sticks with people and what's memorable. Um, I like I saw um, the most powerful um, theater experience I ever had um, was seeing Macbeth. But it was the one man Macbeth done by Alan Cumming. And he has a moment where he's drowning himself. Like when he's in a fight he to die, Macbeth drowns himself. And he held his breath for about three minutes. And that made me so uncomfortable instead of like doing a fight club kind of he's killing himself kind of thing. And that's that discomfort is what lingers and makes you think. Um, seeing it, if you see it, if you saw an actor walking back and forth, you'd be like, oh, yeah, well, that's an actor. And it takes you out of the imagery of it and the discomfort that needs to sit with you in order for the show to really land. Um which I think he does a lot of that in Three Billboards, where there's an implication of something without somebody actually saying something or doing something. And it makes you uncomfortable. Because I would venture to say, like, I still want to talk about Pillow Man, but I would <laughs> venture to say that, don't uh, uh, hate to bring us back to Three Billboards, but um, his characters, and Three Billboards, the characters in this, remind me a lot of the characters in Pillow Man, whereas they are deeply, deeply flawed, but every single one of them thinks that they're doing the right thing. And in their story, they're the hero. And I would venture to say that every character in Pillow Man, in their story, they're the hero. With the exception of maybe the brothers, um, whereas Michael is more trying to be the hero and doing it the wrong way. Um, he's trying to be, like, reenact cat stories and... and uh, Spoiler, ends up killing a whole bunch of kids. <laughs> and um, you can't fault him for that because he's just aspiring to be the hero, but he's doing it the wrong way. And I think that's what a lot of the characters in Three Billboards are doing, too. They're trying to be, a char they're trying to be the hero in their own story, but it's really because they have so much guilt and they have so much um, f like guilt from things that they've done or haven't done or failed to do and they're trying to make up for it with this re their own redemption arc that they've made in their own head which that's not how you get redemption like they're trying to fast forward through redemption instead of doing all the work that they need to do and i think 
Pillow Man has a lot of that too. You have all of the characters, you have Ariel, you have Tolkien, you, they're all doing actions to fast forward through their own atonement and their own redemption arc. And that makes them the hero of their own story, but really villains. Like the, the if you took any of these characters out, again, in any other play, they'd be a villain. I just talked for like 10 minutes. <laughs> no, no, that's great. No, I that's 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 why that's why you're here. I got so excited when Adam told me that the the you know, one that I, you know, like I said, I'm still bitter about not seeing the Pillow Man, and then two, when he told me that we could actually get you on the show and and talk about it, I I was over the moon. So I'm I'm really grateful to have that sort of insight because I've only read it once, and I know that I didn't take it all in the first time. And and part of my problem, and this leads to, uh, to to the other question that I wanted to ask about the Pillow Man is I I wish I hadn't looked at that first couple of pages where they told you the breakdown of who was in the the London show and then who was in the Broadway show. I love the idea of Billy Crudup. I've always loved him. I think he's a great actor. Michael Stuhlbarg as well. He's fantastic. Um, but going from Jim Broadbent in the London version to Jeff Goldblum in the American version, that just, I'm sorry, that just doesn't jive with me. I just, I, I love Jeff Goldblum, but I just don't love the idea of Jeff Goldblum in this. I would never cast Jeff Goldblum in this. I've read that going, no, no, that's, no. That's odd. That is very, very odd. This is more like a Malkovich kind oh, of Oh, yeah, I would love to see Malkovich in this. Oh, man, that would be, ah, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, Malkovich, I would love to see in this. He's a, I, I think he would, and I would put him in either of the cops. I would have him be at either of the, the cops. I wouldn't, I, he's a little too old to be cat, so. Yeah. yeah, no, that works for me. I would love to see, like, my, now that you've said that, my ideal casting is I think I would have Malkovich as Ariel and uh, Kieran Hines. I, d I couldn't get Kieran Hines out of my mind when I was reading, uh, to, uh, I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation Topolsky. of his name, to Topolsky? Yeah. yeah. Now, I do have to say, because of the brothers' relationship, whatnot, um, I, and I couldn't, honestly, I couldn't find a cat. Um, Adam was a late find. Um, we, I had everybody cast when I was like, I don't have a cat. Like, I don't have someone who can do it. Like, it's because it's a, it's a show that they have to carry. And if they, if you don't have a cat that can carry it, it doesn't matter how good the rest of your characters are, the show's not going to go. So I didn't have a cat. And that's when I was like, maybe I'll make cat a girl. Well, you know, there can then there's when Cat kills his brother to protect his art, it's a little heavier because of the maternal instinct and whatnot. Um, and then we looked into that in the 11th hour and McDonough doesn't allow that in your casting. So I was like, well, we got to find a cat then. And so we went back to the drawing board. Um, and I don't know how um, Mark and Jen found Adam, but he just showed up at uh, my callback. They were like, Alicia, we got somebody. And I was like, Okay, they're like, we hear good things. I'm like, all right. Uh, he showed up back in callbacks, and I was like, and he did one reading. I was like, I don't have to see anything more. And they're like, well, we're here for three more hours, so you have to. <laughs> and I was like, well, all right then. The short version is that I was j literally moving back from Indiana. They wouldn't accept video auditions, and I begged and pleaded to be seen at, at callbacks. And I, I, I basically asked around and said, hey, has anybody worked here? And B, can you tell them I'm not like a psycho and just let, let me come and read? <laughs> Because I, I love this play, and I would really like to read for it. Oh, all right then. <laughs> yeah, because his name was on there. I was like, I don't remember seeing this guy. I'm like, well, yeah, he just got back or something or whatever. We hear good things. I'm like, all right. Because <laughs> usually I'm very particular about people I invite to callbacks or people who I just give a – like who I precast in something. Um, 
So I'm very picky. And I was like, I didn't see this guy at callbacks. Because when I do auditions, I always see if I can direct them and if they're directable. Um, so they come and they do a monologue. And then I go, okay, we're going to do it completely different now. And usually nine times out of 10, the actor does it the exact same way, either slower or louder. <laughs> no matter what direction you give them. Whether it's like, all right, now I want you to be really internal about this. Now I want you to be sad. Or you might like, oh, okay, they take two minutes. And then they do it again, slower or louder. And you're like, wow. You can't take direction, but great. Um, but actually, all four of the gentlemen who I cast in that audition process could take direction. Um, Adam, when he came and did his reading, he took direction. I was like, oh, all right, I can work with these dudes. Let's let's get this going. So It was a great show and a great well, cast. <laughs> well, well done, sir. My, my last question, and then we can get back to three billboards, is I've, I've lived in Redmond for about 10 years now. I actually live uh, about a mile and a half away from where Second, Second Story is, and I know the sort of hoity-toity, delicate sensibilities of this town. I'm curious what the reaction to Pillow Man was amongst the, uh, the masses and their, as I say, delicate sensibilities. If, if you couldn't detect the sarcasm there, I mean, I, I love living in Redmond, but the people sometimes, they, they can fuck off. Well, I'm aware of that. And um, because I am a very charming small person, because I'm not a tall, like, guard, because, and I kind of, my hair was very short, so I kind of look like a little elf, so it's cute. I bartended every single one to talk to the, to the audience that was there beforehand. I was like, hey have some wine. Would you like a beer? Yes, you do. Of course you do. And then I would pre-sell them a glass at intermission. I'm like, you're going to want another glass. Trust me. Just trust me on this one. And so I would try to ease them into it as much as I could. Um, I also, I used my foreword that I wrote. I wrote a really, um, a long, the longest foreword that they've ever had, direct, the longest director's note they've ever had at Second Story, but they let me do it because um, the show needed it. Um, it was mixed at first, but after our first weekend, it, it word of mouth spread, and um, uh, then it was nothing but positivity and um, support. Like, people were just very um, not, I mean, there were some who were disturbed, and there were some who were uncomfortable. Um, uh, there was a lot of crying people. Um, after every show, there would be a mixed bag of crying people, like, hat people who were laughing out of nervous discomfort. Um and part of that was my fault, but I, not my fault. Part of that was on purpose because I didn't let them have a, um, a, a curtain, curtain call. call. Yeah. And I did that on purpose because I wanted them to be uncomfortable. I wanted people to leave with that angst because what curtain calls usually do, like you have a really heavy show and then the actors come out like, Hey, we're real people. We're fine out of character. And then the audience goes, Oh, I feel so much better. I didn't want the audience to feel better. And so every night they leave, it's, there's a blackout and they're all waiting. The lights come up and I'm the only one clapping. Um, and then everybody else continued clapping and then doors open and I stood up and I, I left. I would go and I'd leave and people were like, oh, is there no, is there I go, no, no one's bowing. And they were like, oh, okay. So there was a, a level of discomfort that sat with people, um, but nobody said they didn't like it. There were people who said, oh, it's not for me, or, ooh, this is very dark, or, oh, it made me uncomfortable. But then they came back again towards the end. So um, it, I wouldn't say it was, like, well-received, but it was received and processed to the point where people had to see it again. Um, we didn't have anybody leave at intermission. Um, 
And I, I, I mean, and that was after we crucified a kid. So no one left. And I was like, that's a win. <laughs> um, uh, and I think part of it was I knew there was an older lady who was very uncomfortable and she had bought like four glasses of wine. And I remember pouring it for her and she was, this is a very discour- dis- discouraging show. I'm like, it is. I go, but you want to see how it ends, don't you? And she's like, yeah, we do. And I, I was pretty sure she was going to leave, but they need to see how it ended and they needed the resolution, but then they didn't get it. And then they came back again. Like I saw them again towards the end. Um, so it's a, it's a show that lingers and it's a show that um, people want to do because it sticks with people and it, it leaves an impression. Um, I think if we did it again, if I, I think if Second Story did it again and did it with the same cast, they, people would, it would sell out because it was that people really, I don't want to say they enjoyed it, but they wanted to be part of it. If that, if that makes any sense. Well, yes, please, please do it again. And I'll be there more than once. All right. I will send this to, I will share this podcast with Mark Chenevik. Mark, you've heard it. <laughs> people want to see it again. Uh, I'm sure all, I know all of the boys cause I've talked to every single one of them and they've all said they would do it again. So, second story rep, if anybody's listening, you should probably go to their shows anyway. Yeah, so. that, yeah indeed. 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 <laughs> All right. So, yes, yes. Well, now we'll, we'll pull this back to three billboards. Um, yes. And we'll talk a little bit about accolades because uh, there was a bunch of shit that it won and was up for. Um, so, we'll, we'll jump to the Oscars uh, where uh, Frances McDormand won Best Actress and Sam Rockwell won Best Supporting Actor. It lost Best Picture and Score to The Shape of Water, uh, which blows. Um, it, <laughs> it lost Best... Shape of Water. I heard somebody call that Grinding Nemo, and I can never think of it as anything else now. Oh, well, that's... Yeah, that's... that's I'm never getting that out of there. That's good. That's good. Uh, it lost... And it makes me so mad that we lost to that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it it lost best original screenplay to Get Out. Uh, it lost best editing to Dunkirk, and it you know it's hard to say it lost best supporting actor because Woody Harrelson was also nominated and he lost to Sam Rockwell. Um, just a quick little thing because I I I tend to give the the Academy Awards a, a lot of credit even though they, they don't really deserve it. So um, we're gonna focus on four uh, categories that year. Um, here are the films that were nominated for best picture. Uh, the Shape of Water, which won? Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, The Post, Phantom Thread, and Three Billboards. Three years later, we know, we know they got it wrong with The Shape of Water. What are you picking to win Best Picture that year? I, I, I would have to say Get Out that year. Um I, I, and it, I would, I, I mean, three billboards is my personal favorite, but I think if you think of like, are we, are we just saying our opinion or are we saying oh, I, 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 I think your opinion? Yeah. What, like what? Oh, with my opinion, I'd go three billboards. Now I really enjoy get out. And I do think that it at like the Oscar for best, um, screenplay, what rightfully deserved, but, um, I, I like this as a, I think this would be a better picture to win best picture than definitely better than the shape of water. Um, uh, but my, I would, it's very, it's a hard decision, but between get out and, um, three billboards, I'd go with three billboards. Just when we get into the meat of it, um, 
I will explain my reasoning why I thought think this is one of the best pictures. So, yep, yep perfect. And what do you, what about you? Well, well, your original answer there, Alicia. I'm totally fine with Get Out winning with picture, but I would have to have the trade off. If Get Out wins picture, then three billboards needs either screenplay or director. I know McDonough wasn't nominated for director, but I would take out. I mean, right now, without even thinking about it, Nolan comes out for Dunkirk, and uh, and and he goes in for director and and wins is is my personal preference or or you know any sort of because I'm I'm all for making history when and where we can I'm totally fine with Jordan Peele winning screenplay that makes him the first African American to ever win in that category that's great let's do that Get Out totally deserves it but McDonough was was really shafted this year I I do but I think the screenplay for Get Out is better than Three Billboards. I, I think it's 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 an original story. Like Three Billboards again, it's a redemption movie and whatnot. But um, I think creativity wise, if you look at it, I think Get Out beats it creativity wise hands down. Yeah, I think it's a tough oh, yeah, he, it's he, a tough beat because it tends to be one of those two things. It's are we rewarding uh, like the 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 dialogue and and what and how it fits now in the world, or are we looking at the actual creativity of the story and how it's being told? And it's yeah, that, that can be tough sometimes when you have two go up against each other that are just in the going in opposite directions. Um, for the record, I, I don't know. I, I, my, I, my answer would honestly probably either be three billboards or, or lady bird. Cause I, I actually fucking really love that movie. Um, I realize it's not quote unquote for me, but I don't give a shit. That movie was, was great. Um, lady bird was for me. Cause I went to private Catholic school and I was like, yeah, right. I love it. Like I love it. But I don't think it's a three billboards or a get out. A lot of love and respect for Greta Gerwig getting nominated for director, though. I'm all for that. Yeah, well, and that, that goes into yeah. the next thing. So our nominees for director that year uh, were uh, Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, um, Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, and Jordan Peele for Get Out. Um, uh, you, Ian, you kind of answered one of the questions I was going to ask was, would, if, if, you could, if you wanted to put McDonough in, who would you kick out? And then who should have won? Well, who should have won should have been Paul Thomas Anderson because Phantom Thread is a fucking masterpiece. Okay. I mean, of of the five of the five that's already there, you know, without McDonough stepping in. I, I liked Phantom Thread, but I feel like I've seen that movie before, especially from P.T. Anderson. Like I've seen yeah. it from Paul Thomas Anderson. I feel like I've seen it before, and it's like, eh. I I like I, I like Phantom Thread, but. I also think it's probably like my sixth favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie and not the Mine. one that he should, he should have won best director for um, is yeah. That's, that's, that's my two cents. Yeah. I, I feel the same, but I would definitely take out Nolan for Dunkirk because again, Dunkirk felt like a movie like, yeah, well we've seen that one before. I mean, what you got, you have a, you have, you have a kid from One Direction in it who surprised me. Oh, okay. But, and I mean, and the way he shot that, I'm like, sure, okay, but I'll give you cinematography for that one. You yeah. know, um, the way he shot it was interesting, uh, but I would definitely kick out McDonough and put, I, I mean, I would put McDonough in Nolan's spot. Um, as far as directing, again, I think the way this was, like, I, I like the, I'm, again, I really enjoyed Get Out, not just for what it said at the time or whatnot. I think it would stand wherever you put it in time as a great movie because it's it's a story that hasn't been told. It's creative. It's um, 
And then when you rewatch it, there's so many Easter eggs where you're like, ah, oh, look at them wearing hats. Oh, and all the white people are in black cars. This is amazing kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it's the same thing with like how I feel about three billboards when you watch it again. I've owned this movie. I own all of McDonough's movies, um, even Seven Psychopaths, which is like, eh, it's okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it's one where you watch it again and again and again. And you, I watched it twice before this podcast. I watched it as soon as Adam said, hey, do you want to do this podcast? I'm like, of course I do. <laughs> um, just because I wanted to re I was like, oh, I haven't seen that in a couple months. I should rewatch it. And then um, I watched it yesterday as well, just to make sure all this stuff was fresh in my brain. Um, and there's little things that you don't notice that were there where you're like, that's a that's a beautifully placed um, picture of the daughter in the background when they're having this conversation, right? Um, so I, I still think best director would go to Jordan Peele. I mean, I, it... I think it's directed beautifully. Um, I would go with Get Out, but then close second would be three, bill, three Billboards. And I don't know how Dunkirk got on there, except for maybe because Nolan shot it in a new way um, or actually an old way that people hadn't used in a long time. And people were like, oh, yeah, we can do that still. So, Well, I think Adam would theorize that they put Nolan in there just to not give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just like with with Paul Thomas Anderson, it's like it's recognition for for work too late is is my opinion. Um, yeah, yeah. So well, know, well, Washington and with um, like Denzel Washington and the Russell Crowe, we're like, really, you won for that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, part of the reason I say Paul Thomas Anderson is I'm still pretty bitter about the whole "there will be blood" thing. So if they were to give it to him for Phantom Thread, I'd be like, yeah, okay, it's a makeup Oscar, and I'm okay with that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so just two more, two more categories. Um, now I, I, and this is a bias and, and hopefully I don't sound misogynistic when I say this, but I, I feel like best actress some years can be really shitty. Like, it's like, there's one person, you know, is going to win and like four other okay performances uh, this year. I got to say, uh, okay. So we got, so Frances McDormand for three billboards, um, um, uh, Margot Robbie for I, Tanya, uh, Sarsha Ronan for Lady Bird, Meryl Streep for The Post, and Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water. Now, I did not like The Shape of Water. I I really don't like the movie at all. She's about please, the- Please, please. For the rest of this podcast, can we call it Grinding Nemo? Yes, for grind yes, Grinding Nemo is bad. But Sally Hawkins is like the one thing in that movie that I, I could cling to. And so when I look at these five, I go, shit, those are five great performances. And, I, and I, this is, might be my hottest take. I would have given it to Margot Robbie. Because I think the work she does in I, Tanya is, is stellar. Fucking stellar. It's a cl Ian's giving me a look. It's a close. It's close. But I would, I would have given it to Margot Robbie. I'm going to show my bias right now that I don't like it when actors win awards for impersonating real people. Oh, oh yes. Oh, Ian gives, me, Ian gives me so much shit. I have that, ex I think, the exact same thing. Oh yeah, because I mean, it's an impression. Like, okay, you did a really good impression. Good job. And but I think it's much harder to create your own character. And because I've done it, I've done both sides. And maybe this is just me. It's much easier when you have. I have a whole bunch of stuff to pull from to make those acting choices. And once I have like a voice and a characterization, I'm great. Um. So I I have I take I I don't like it when actors win for playing characters that are real people who are already there 
that they can actually just, I'm going to go interview this person and just be that person. Sure. Um, I, I would still give it to Francis out of those. Although I did like what Margot Robbie did. Um, I would still give it to Francis McDormand because ha- we'll get into her character, but she's a horrible fucking mom. She's a horrible <laughs> mother. She is not like to meet her. She's not pleasant. And you get from the flashbacks, you get an idea from the flashbacks and from her talking about her husband and her husband talking about her and the kid and her son that she, and the people in the town, she's never been a good person. And that, for me to still feel for her and go, oh, gosh, my heart breaks for you. That is hard to do to create a character who is on paper just horrible and then has these horrible moments, but then wins you back in these beautiful like scenes where like the one that she's sitting on the bed and she talks with her with her um, little yeah. bunny slippers. Yep. It's so humanizing and so funny that you're like, okay. Are you going to crucify the motherfuckers? I'm going to kill those motherfuckers. Like, you're, I mean, she's a horrible garbage person and a horrible mother. (laughs) But I still want her to kill that guy at the end. Like, I'm okay with her killing that guy. Yeah. And not because she's a garbage person, but because I actually like her. You're like, yeah, no, okay. You're a garbage person but you're my garbage person. So, and that's hard to do as an actor, so yeah. I would have to give it to Francis. Totally fair. Ian? I'm going to I'm gonna stand down on the actors not winning for doing impressions. I know that it's an argument that I don't have a leg to stand on, not being an actor, so I will, I will uh, humbly concede. But um, Francis McDormand, yeah. I mean, out of all of those, I don't know why Meryl Streep's on that list other than the fact that she's Meryl Streep because the post is again it's an okay movie it's a movie we've seen before it's safe easy choices from everybody involved from the top down it's less it's less interesting all the president's men yeah exactly yeah no I when I got to the end of the post that's exactly right I got to the end of the post and I was like oh I just want to go home and watch all the president's men now because it's just a better movie same with Interstellar I got to the end of Interstellar and like no I'm going to go home and watch 2001 because it's just a better movie but what I love about Francis McDormand is it's a I've talked about this before on the show. I love performances that are on the ragged edge. I love performances that feel like they're at any moment can fall apart. It's it's a fuck you performance. It's like uh, the best example, and it's an easy example uh, uh, for a comparison, is it's like Al Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon. It's right out there. It's right as far as you can go to the edge of, of, of it all coming apart. But it's there's a level of, you know there's a level of control there as well. Which is, I, I... Pacino in Scent of a Woman. Hey, that's good. I'm all for that. My two favorite Pacino films. So. Hey, there you go. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. And I realize we, we, we're very, it's almost been an hour that we've been recording and we're, we're not quite even to talk about the movie yet, but that's okay. That's okay. I have one more that I, I want to mention and that's best supporting actor, uh, which of course this movie had two nominees with Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson uh, also nominated that year uh, was Richard Jenkins for the shape of water. Um, Christopher Plummer <laughs> stepping in for a now uh, banned Kevin Spacey and all the money in the world. And, my pick, um, Willem Dafoe for the Florida Project. That would have been my choice, in hindsight. 
I would have given it to Woody. Like, now, I love Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell, if you are ever listening to this and you ever divorce your wife, I am available at any time whatsoever if I'm in a relationship. It doesn't matter. We'll dance into the sunset together, Sam Rockwell. Like, I love him. I loved him from when I saw him in Lawn Dogs at the Sundance Film Festival, like a deep, deep cut. And I was like, who is that man? And then when he was all these various characters, I knew who Sam Rockwell was before before Green Mile. So, um uh, I was very upset. I, I am obsessed with Sam Rockwell in a healthy way. Um, <laughs> but I give it to Woody Harrelson. Uh, I think Woody Harrelson is somebody who people don't take seriously as an actor. Um, and I think I think it all stems from him playing himself a lot in his early part of his career. Yeah. And people not realizing that, oh, he's depth. Uh, and what he did in this was just so sweet. And then... Maybe it's because I also love the pillow man so much. He puts that bag on his head. And I remember I was in the theater. I actually watched it with Jalen. Oh, nice. And I'm in the theater. I was like, oh, Martin, you and those bags. And <laughs> he puts a bag over his head and he and he shoots himself. And I, it's just that the whole, um, the way he read, like, I think a voiceover is really hard to do in a movie uh, and still have that character connection. Because you're you're not on the screen anymore and you're just reading. But he took such really great pauses to carry on the his message and what was needed that I would have gone with Woody Harrelson. I I I realize we're not into the the meat of the movie yet, but I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because again, after not only having been in a McDonough show, but having reread a bunch of his stuff, McDonough writes great stories and great letters. Um and I know firsthand the story part of it, but I, I, the, the three letters that he he writes and are voiceovered in the movie are both like sweet, but also like because I remember when he's doing the one to his wife, like and and I, and I won't lie, like I have two daughters, I found it to be very very like I was I was crying during that moment, legit. But then we get to the one where he's written it to 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 Mildred, and he's like, I paid for the for the next month. Just to see how you deal with that. You. Now you're fucking <laughs> laughing at this letter, and it's like, fuck you, McDonough, because it's 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 brilliant and like, ah, uh, what a and and you mentioned this earlier, Ian. Like, just I feel like his his dialogue is a gift. It's a gift to be able to to say these words and and on the the making of documentary, you to hear Francis McDormand and Woody and Sam Rockwell all say like the script was the Bible. You're not changing shit. And if you're looking for an answer to your question, you go back to the script. And, you know, it's and like it's funny because like McDonough is the way it's funny because I was about to make a Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde joke, which gets made in this movie. <laughs> but like I, I love the reverence that these actors are giving McDonough. Like it's it's he's not a fly by night guy. He's been around. He's worked at his craft and that they're. They were they're respecting his script enough to not just be off the cuff and improv. Um, makes me happy because his script is his scripts are great. Um, so I'm so glad you brought up the letters because they are fantastic. Well, there's also a great use of of foreshadowing in his letter to Mildred, which I'm I'm not always a fan of foreshadowing. But when he talks about, I really hope this case gets solved, and I hope you know it may be just something that some guy overhears one day in a bar. I'm like, you smug bastard, you. That's so good. He, well, and he he says it twice. Like he says it in the letter, and then he also says it before. Like he alludes to that. Like that's how these things are solved, kind of thing. Um, and and 
then when it gets at the end and it's not solved, but they're getting their own kind of resolution, you're like, oh, all right, I see you. I see what you're doing there. Ian, uh, who, who would your pick be as before we move on? Easy, easy answer is that I, I agree. I think the Academy got it right that year. I adore Sam Rockwell, and I, I especially adore him in this film. I think it is, I hate when people use the phrase, it was a brave performance. I, I, I think that <laughs> kind of cheapens, I think that can cheapen something every once in a while. But the, the what he had to do in this film, there is a lot of, there is a lot of throwing yourself out on the line with what he had to do. There's a lot of, you know, there's, there's, audience members that are going to look at this now and like poor Ted Levine in Science of the Lambs, you're only ever going to see him as Buffalo Bill. There will now be people that only ever see Sam Rockwell as as Dixon, but that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. That speaks to the strength of, of this performance. Uh, it's, it's also really hard for me not to give some love to Christopher Plummer in All the Money in the World. I know that is not uh, not the most popular Ridley Scott film. It's not his best, but I, I still really enjoyed it. I am a self-confessed Ridley Scott fanboy, and I think what Ridley did by, you know, saying, fuck you, Kevin Spacey, but I'm also not going to punish 900 other people, and we're going to get Christopher Plummer in here and do this thing in three weeks. That in itself, I I respect so much the decision to just give that the nomination as a tip of the cap, saying we saw what you did, and we respect that decision. Cool. So I'm going to just blaze through the rest of the accolades that I, I uh, wrote down. So um, at the Golden Globes, it won Best Picture, Actress and Supporting Actor and Screenplay. Uh, at the BAFTAs, it won Best Film, British British Film, Actress, Supporting Actor and Original Screenplay. Um, it At the SAG, it won Best Ensemble, Best Actress and Best Supporting Actor. It was on the AFI's uh, Top 10 Films of the Year. And it also picked up DGA and PGA noms. Um, it is currently... But no... No Writers Guild nomination, which is horseshit. Now, the writers... No, I, I didn't look into this specifically, but the Writers Guild stuff is always weird because, like, Quentin Tarantino doesn't get nominated for that, but he's also not a member of it. So I'm, I'm curious if if McDonough was even eligible or or not. I think you have to be a member of the Writers Guild, but you ha- if you're not paying your dues, you're not Yeah, there's, there's a lot... Of, the Writers Guild one is the most interesting of the guilds because it's a lot of times you'll be like, well, why the fuck wasn't this nominated? And it's because it, it, was, it just straight up wasn't eligible. Um, currently, this film sits at number 151 on the IMDb Top 250. Ian, do you have what is on either side of that? Because I know you tend to do that. Well, I think I, I think I maybe took this later. That when did when did you get your notes? Because uh, I have it at one. I have it at one fifty. Oh shit! Oh, it's moving up. I know. I took it. I, yeah. I had. I took my notes on June twenty fourth. Okay, so mine are mine are a little newer than yours. So yes, it has well, moved up one you, place, buddy. Yeah, that's yeah. I know. Anything to one up you. Yeah. I know. Um, on, on either side of it, are, uh, Judgment at Nuremberg is number 149. I've not seen that. I hear yeah. good things. And then uh, at number 151 is My Father and My Son, which is a Turkish film from 2005 I, I know nothing about. Ditto. Yeah, no idea. So cool. No context there. Um, uh, Rotten Tomatoes score. It is currently has a 90% critical with an 87% audience. I'm going to go ahead and skip reviews this week because we've been talking for a while and I want to talk about this, this fucking movie. Oh, you don't, you don't want to talk about Rex Reed's review. Oh, is it, is it scintillating? 
it's not scintillating. It just makes me... I'm not a violent person. I try <laughs> to be a pacifist. I try to be a good-natured human being. But if I ever see Rex Reed walking down the side... The, walking down the road, he better know to cross to the other fucking side. Because otherwise, he's going to get a smack in the fucking mouth. Oh, okay. Sorry, well, sorry, for the, sorry for the aggression there. It's just that he, he's been called out numerous times for the fact that he is a, he is a critic on the way out. He needs to... He needs to realize that it's better to burn out than to... Well, I don't know. Maybe it's better to burn out than to fade away. That's I, I don't know. Whatever. He said, if you'll indulge me, uh, this film is uneven in every way, but the big failure, and he goes on to rip McDonough a new arsehole for some reason. I know. Here, I, we're going to get a little incendiary. Uh, this film is uneven in every way, but the big failure is writer-director McDonough's inability to keep the story coherent. Like everything he writes, Three Billboards wobbles unsteadily between edgy, repulsive violence and edgy, unstable black comedy. Both sides of the equation losing balance in the slick morass of, morale co- of moral collapse. Most of all, it's about good actors slumming it. McDonough wants oh. to be one of the Coen brothers. Here's the line that made me go fucking batshit. But he's not an American, and he doesn't understand the language. Watching McDonough's movies is like a brain concussion. They leave you thinking and staggering in the dark at the same time. Excuse me, he's not, he's not American and he doesn't understand language. Last time I looked, it was called the fucking English language. But I do like that line, he leaves you thinking and stumbling in the dark. Like, yes, okay, but in a good way. Like, in a good way. Like, you're left thinking and really introspective. Uh, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I hate him. <laughs> well, he, he, went on to, he went on to describe McDonough's career. He kind of tore him as a part, apart as a playwright. I don't think Rex Reed has seen any of his plays. Uh, he described In Bruges as being about a, uh, a little person who was on horse tranquilizers. Yeah, there is a little person on ketamine in the movie, but that's not what the movie is about. Ugh. Oh. He also he also got a whole bunch of shit for uh, the uh, review he did earlier in the year where he said that uh, Benicio del Toro directed Shape of Water. He spelled Benicio's <laughs> name wrong and said that he was he said that he was Spanish. Well, firstly, Guillermo del Toro is not Spanish; he's from Mexico, and Benicio del Toro is from Puerto Rico. So anyway, Rex Reed, fuck him. He's on his way out. Oh, I hate that guy. It seems like Rex Reed might be a make for a a good sergeant on the Ebbing Police Department um in terms of his uh, <laughs> view of 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 people and race. I would I would be calling him a fuckhead as soon as I walked in the door. Oh. <laughs> um so the quick quick just brief synopsis of this movie is um so Francis McDormand plays uh Mildred Hayes whose daughter uh as she so eloquently puts it on a couple of billboards was raped while dying and her murder has gone unsolved and she decides to take matters into her own hands and call out Woody Harrelson's character, uh, Will chief Willoughby, um, as to why there's been no progress made. Um, and because of this and because the billboards have garnered some attention, there is more, te- there is more, uh, put getting towards, um, the case of what happened to her daughter. Um, and then we also have a subplot of, uh, Sam Rockwell who plays Dixon and his, uh, and and Alicia, you mentioned to this earlier with with McDonough writing, which is we are alluded to what he has done in the past, but it is never fully explained or given much detail to about him. Uh, while a, it sounds like a young black man was in custody. He, the word they use is tortured, um, and uh, they don't ever they don't ever really confirm nor deny that. Uh, but he's definitely somebody who is dealing with race in a negative way. And it's also sort of a story of him and and uh, 
I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say his rise to redemption, but certainly his, his, ch- the change that he goes through after, um, well, the things that he goes through in the movie. Um, so we'll just kind of, we'll, I want to leave it vague for now. One of the people that one, one of, if you looked, I remember when this movie came out, people were like, oh, it's great. But then one of the biggest complaints that they had is that uh, Sam Rockwell's character, uh, Jason Dixon, um, Jason, yes, Jason, um, his redemption isn't a full redemption arc. They think that he got redeemed too early. And what I would argue is, you're right, but he thinks he's doing everything right. He He's fast forwarding through that redemption. He's He thinks, if I do this, then it'll make up for all the shitty stuff that I've done. And so I would argue, and if I ever get to sit down with Martin McDonough, um, oh, and his wife. Um, oh, God. Or girlfriend. Girlfriend. If I could sit girlfriend. down with both of them, the girlfriend, they're not married, right? But no. they've been together for a while. Yeah, a couple of years. I would like, well, one, I want to talk to her about Fleabag. Yeah, but exactly. Then, <laughs> um, uh, and gush a little bit um, and crashing, talk about both of them. But then really say that that was intentional, right? You didn't want him to really get redeemed in the right way. You wanted him to think he was redeemed in the wrong way. And I think he does this a lot. McDonough does this a lot with his characters. Again, they think they're the heroes. So they think they're doing it the right way and they never quite take all the right steps they should. Um, They're not quite introspective enough or, you know, really Sam Rockwell's character should have probably gone to therapy and figured some stuff out and maybe moved out of his mom's house. Big shout out to Mrs. Mac. I don't know what her name is. Fuck. Yes. But she's Mrs. And she has this beauty, like this, Really, like this moment that really got me in a visceral way that I didn't expect when he comes home all bloody and she's screaming, like pounding on the bathroom door, my boy, my boy, my baby boy. And you're like, oh, wow, Mrs. Mac, you can do more than just smoke a cigarette and and drink beer and say (laughs) things that are mean. Wow. Like she's acting her ass off. So really quickly, her her name is Sandy Martin. Okay, thank you. I'm still going to call her Mrs. Mac. (laughs) Um, But... um, and I mean, I've seen her in other things where she's where she actually acts and does different things. But I, everybody, I know her most from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, but she shows so many. She through the entire show, she's the same character. She's Mrs. Mac from the same. Like you could take her out of Always Sunny, throw her in there, and but then she has those two minutes of just just guttural ma- maternal motherness coming out, and you're like, wow. I would not expect that from you. And Mac probably would have ended up better if you were like that with him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, 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 there are so many things that I, so I, I, I will fully admit that when I watched this movie for the first time, I saw it in theaters and I was really excited about it. I walked out thinking I liked it, but I, I had that sort of hesitant, like liked kind of, I liked that movie. Um, I didn't, I never quite got to loved and, I uh, hadn't revisited since I saw it in theaters, and boy, am I glad that I finally rewatched this movie. Not just because I like McDonough, um, but the 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 two things that really hit me are both, and maybe this is obvious, but I don't care uh, how prescient this movie is, and also, God, the the moments in this, there are moments in this movie that knocked me on my ass that I just was not expecting to 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 hit me as hard as it did. Um, the one line in particular, which did both kind of, um, 
was when uh, the new the guy from The Wire uh, is sort of taking in for for Willoughby after he's killed himself, and uh, it's it's after Mildred has basically firebombed the police station, and she's sitting there and he comes out and he's trying to figure out what's going on and and Peter Dinklage uh, covers for her, um, and um, she she's being really she's being kind of short and not giving him real answers, and he says we ain't all the enemy, you know? And I thought I, it just kind of, it really knocked me back because not only is it, is he a police officer saying this, but he's a, he's a black police officer saying this in Missouri. And, and when this was made, I mean, this is really close to what happened in Ferguson, but um, like with, with what's going on now too, like I was like, that's, that's the statement of the last like three years. And, and I, it's funny cause it's not given much attention. They go to the next scene like right away, but I, that stuck with me for like three or four minutes after he said it. And I, you know, we say this all the time with, with movies that have some kind of an impact, but I mean, we're really just in the same fucking boat we were when this movie came out and it's, it's, it sucks. But I, the, and the other thing about McDonough, that I, that a lot of the people said on the on the making of was that he doesn't he doesn't like to um, he's not trying to solve societal problems but he likes to bring them to the forefront which again I don't think anybody's claiming that he's trying to solve race relations or police brutality but it, I like that he makes it the framework of how this story is being told. Well, and watching it now, um, the three billboards like as protest like this is based on a real on a real story but it's they didn't get protests it was like it wasn't uh billboards excuse me it was little like yard signs um in somebody's yard so it wasn't this big of a skeptical like big scale spectacle excuse me um but the black lives matter movement has used this a lot of protest movements have used the billboards um that they got from this this idea from this movie and they've interviewed mcdonough about it and he says no this is great because i'm glad that they're using that to bring more focus to their message and their movement so well i think the the line that was it was it was difficult when it first came out is when he's interrogating uh, Mildred, he's brought her in because of the big fat dentist with his big fat thumbnail. And he says, well, if you got all rid of all the cops with, you know, slightly, even slightly racist leanings, you'd only have three cops left and all of them would hate gays. Obviously he doesn't say gays, but I'm not going to say the other word. Um, that line just, I mean, it, it fucked me over the first time I heard it in 2017, but now when we've come this far and haven't made really any progress, that line hit me like a ton of bricks. Well, the line and the delivery, because he's 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 kind of chuckling it through like that's you know I mean you can't get rid of it again and again credit. it's just just the way things are yeah exactly yes exactly yeah oh yeah yeah um so yeah I I, For I just that line alone I think Woody the way he delivered that Woody Harrelson could have won the Oscar because he <laughs> it's such a heavy like horrible line to be saying as a white man in a police uniform like saying that um. The, and to say it as a joke, like, I'm going to add a little levity here. And then immediately that makes you like, and this is the beauty of McDonough's writing. You're like, oh, oh, Francis McDonough, like Mildred is in there with him. And they're all they're very negative. They're very upset. But then he coughs up blood on her. And it's this dramatic change of tone. And she goes into mothering mode. And he goes into this 
much he he becomes smaller on oh, screen it, it's which so is sweet so hard to do as an actor where he can change it like that and granted i mean i have my own with movies like he probably had like 19 times to do that sure but he does it so be, like effortlessly and she swat like that that like the the cut to her looking at him when he coughs blood in her face and her immediate you can see the stone wall fall down and you can see her being the mother that she should have been to her daughter <laughs> and it's just the and who she maybe should be doing to her son but she's not um not a great mom um uh but you see this humanity like bubble up to the surface from them from their uh like stone facades that they have up and it's a it's a amazing scene that really I went in while watching it in theaters. I remembered gripping the table, very, like the armchair, very tightly, and um, getting goosebumps, like an uncomfortable goosebump, and then immediately feeling like, oh, and like all the tension went out of my body, going, oh, that's so sad because he is dying, right? Yeah. Um, I, it's hard to like that's just a hard transition to do, and I think it was done excellently. Well, a lot of credit to the actors there, but that's the scene when I'm sitting there in the theater watching it for the first time. I say to myself, I have no more faith in the Academy if they do not give this film best screenplay. I mean, they're doing <laughs> amazing work, to be fair, but I don't know I don't know where you get the wherewithal to write a scene like that. To, he, is, he is a master of sort of misdirection. To, you know, you're lulled into this sort of safe sense of... You know that you're watching a black comedy... You know that you're watching, you know, really, really dark humor that's going to slap you about a little bit, and you're you're sort of allowing yourself to to fall into the comfort and the rhythm of the dialogue in that scene, and then he just hits you with, yeah, I just had Woody Harrelson say the most terrible thing that I could have him possibly say as a cop, but now here you go, I am going to break him down, and as you say, to make him such a small man, and you see the way that, that McDormand says to him, I know, baby, it's okay, that destroys me. Well, and and it's, it's I I agree with that, and and it's there's a section of the movie where it's it's definitely we've sort of shifted away from the dark comedy, and you know we have the scene, and I'm not trying to brush over any of this, but we have the scene where um, uh, Mildred sees the deer, and she has the conversation about reincarnation, and then uh, a few minutes later we have the whole we have the very 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 sweet scene where. Um, Woody Harrelson sets up the whole thing for his kids to fish for the teddy bear so we can have a moment with his wife, only to lead to him killing himself and then the letter, which of course is very, very sweet. So we got this whole this whole section kind of in the middle of the of the movie that leads to for somebody who is mostly known for playwriting, that oneer of Dixon walking across the street, going oh. up and throwing Red Welby out of the window coming back down and then saying, see, I have issues with white folks too. And then going in, first of all, that it's just, it's just awesome anyway. And then watching the behind the scenes, like just, just like the detail and the timing and everything. It just like the, the director of me, the actor of me, the playwright, I mean, like all, like just like so giddy at how everything came together. And I, I fucking, and it just, and just a huge tonal shift because Obviously, we, we just saw Dixon have his, you know, we, you know, can you stand up? Or are you going to faint again? Like, clearly, Dixon has put uh, Willoughby up on this pedestal. And so to see, to see Welby across the street, just like, you know, living large or doing whatever, like, 
seeing that snap change is just fuck. Oh, it's so it's so good. Well, he's grief personified at that time. Yeah, that's what he is. He had just gotten the news that he had killed himself. What? And previously, he was listening to. Abba, Chikatita, <laughs> and everybody's crying behind him, which that in and of itself is beautifully shot, right? He's in the foreground. Everybody's kind of blurry. And if you watch it again, their mourning goes with the music. And you're like, oh, look at them at this right beat. Oh, that, yeah. Um, and then when he turns around and he sees it, it's grief personified. And... Um, I, you know, I lost my mom, like very um, suddenly from cancer. And it was one of those, like, I get it. If there was somebody who I could have focused all my rage at that time and throw out a window, I 100% would have. Um, I probably wouldn't have punched the secretary, though. <laughs> Just throw the guy out the window. Um, but that that scene is, I I think it's a perfectly shot scene. Yeah, it's great. That's that's why Ben Davis and I didn't I wish I'd gotten the the stunt coordinator's name but they are my unsung heroes of this film. That shot fuck me running. It is one of the best one takes in the history of one takes. Well, see Caleb Jones is my unsung hero. Oh nice. Hey, nice. I, that's great. Yeah, Welby is my a, unsung hero. What a what a great year for him. Oh yeah, cuz he was yeah. in this and then he and then he was in Get Out and that goes to speak how good of an actor is. I'm usually one of those six degrees of Kevin Bacon person who I'm like, oh, I know you in that one. I know you as a character. I can do that. I I did not realize who he was until Get Out was in, was like I owned it until it was out of theaters. It was like four months later. And I was like, he looks so familiar to me. And it took, he said something that was very well being. I was like, oh my God. Like putting that together, it just goes to show you what really shitty hair and bad facial hair will do <laughs> to a character <laughs> when you can't really recognize who he is. Um, but he, I think he's, uh, I think K, I think Red Welby is the very normal person on the outside of all the craziness who somehow got sucked sucked in, and you're like, oh no, and you're stuck, you're stuck, and he doesn't know how to get out of it, and then he picks a side. And his side is his own side. Like, I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do for yeah. money. And that ends up getting him thrown out a window. And then at the end, he, I, I think in his little story, he's one of the most forgiving, kind people. He was just thrown in a window. Sam Rockwell comes out and he's all burnt. And he sees that it's Sam Rockwell. And you think, because it's McDonough, you're like, oh, he's going to kill him. He's going to throw that orange juice in his face and it's going to burn. And instead, he just gives him a glass and tells him to shut up and stop crying. And you're like, oh. You're a good dude, Red Welby. You're a good person. I'm kind of torn when it comes to Red Welby and Robbie, who was who has the more thankless role. But you're you're kind of making me lean towards Welby uh, there. Wait, is is Robbie's the son, right? That's Lucas. Robbie's yeah. the son. I I'm yeah. sorry. I I think Lucas Hedges is in the same boat as Timothy Chalamet. These are underwhelming actors, underwhelming, and I I hate. That both of these, and maybe it's a jealousy thing too, I'll put it out there, but I, these, uh, like, they both have Academy Award nominations. These are the two of the most underwhelming actors I've ever seen on screen. So I feel the same way, and I feel like they just lucked into really good yes. writing. Yes. And also, I, I mean, I've directed kids in shows before, in plays and in movies. Kids are the easiest ones to direct. Because you literally just give them line readings and they go, okay, 
And then they do it the way you want them to do it. And then you're like, there's your Academy Award. Enjoy. And I mean, Call Me By Your Name is a is a beautiful love story in the book. But the movie took away a lot. Of, like, it took the gay out of it, honestly. Like, it did. It was like, oh, they could be bros who make out. All right. Yeah. Um, but I feel the same way about Timothy Chalamet. It's like, all right, dude. I mean, just say your lines and look pretty. Good job. Yeah. I, all yeah, right. Yeah. That's pretty much where I am on that. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a tie, though, for Unsung Heroes. Brendan Sexton the third. I remember seeing this kid in um, Empire Records. <laughs> that's a deep cut. Right? And he's turned in, and in this show, he is the creepiest guy that, like, they, they, he is perfectly cast as the creepy, like, I, like, if I ever run into Brendan Sexton III, I will honestly worry that he's going to rape and murder me because of how well he did that, just the, the monologue and everything. And I then also did want to offer him a job as a record store, but um, that's just because I have a flashback to his first, like, big movie um so i'm tied but i really think red welby is the unsung hero and then short right after that he's the rapist guy or crop-haired guy but and it's funny i you mentioned uh when we were talking about red welby and his his willingness to even to give him the, the glass of orange juice despite what's happened that's i, I that's uh part of the reason why I like Daryl Britt Gibson as Jerome so much. I love, I love that open interaction with Dixon where he's like, you know, I could arrest you for, you know, like, oh, for, you know, in, environmental things or whatever. And it looks like, he's like, Hey, why don't, what is it like? Why don't we talk about what you did to get where you are? And then we can have a conversation about the motherfucking environment. Like it's just fucking mwah, It's great. Hey you, what the fuck is this? The fuck is what? This, this, Advertising, I guess. Advertising what? Something obscure? I'll say. Yeah. Don't I know your face from someplace? I don't know, do you? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I could arrest you right now if I wanted to. For what? For emptying out your bucket there. That's that's against the being bad against the environment laws. Well, before you do that, Officer Dixon, how about you go have yourself a look at that first billboard over there? And then we can have ourselves a conversation about the motherfucking environment. How about that? But like, and even though, you know, like this is clearly a a black guy who lives in this area and knows about Dixon and his past is still like is still concerned about what happens to him in the bar when when um crop haired guy is just beating the shit out of Dixon. Um and like and like you can tell like he he's uh Jerome is one of the guys who comes in and like puts up the duplicates. Like I just I don't know it's like it is those small thinkless roles but like McDonough still chooses to give like great dialogue to everybody in the in the in the in the story it's it's just it's fantastic um so my favorite my favorite shot is the one take and my favorite scene is any scene that is a scene where woody harrelson is doing one of the voiceover letters um but i want to know i'm curious what what both for both of you favorite shots or scenes in the movie my favorite i, I mentioned it before francis mcdormand talking with her slippers um that i mean because you don't see that vulnerableness in her character at all and then 
it, it's that moment of levity in this very tragic, like she's, she's beaten. She's very defeated at that point in time. And then um, she has that kill the motherfuckers moment where it's, it's so relatable. I, I, I think everybody talks to themselves or has some kind of thing. If you have an animal, if you have a pet, you've done their voice. It's a very normal thing that people, and it's a, makes her more relatable. It's there. She's like an onion in the beginning. Right. And then eventually you get to her um, multi-layers out and you learn why she is the way that she is, even though she was probably still a really horrible mom, but she was abused. Um, Non-excuse, but hurt people hurt people. And um, you can see how she is the way that she is. And then to be given this, I mean, she was never really nice to Jerome. She wasn't kind. There's no reason for Jerome to step out of his comfort and go, hey, I have this. I can give you this. Um, to give her this gift that she needs so desperately at the time. Um, that scene is, I mean, I love the one shot, but that the scene with her talking to her slippers is my favorite. And you, you know me, you know, there's too many to choose, uh, whether it's, you know, her saying to, to Woody Harrelson's character, you know, these billboards wouldn't be as effective after you croaked. I love the look on his face. I love his suicide. I love all the, the readings, you know, the suicide, not not to say that I love that scene, but I love when he's thinking about the last thing that his wife ever said to him, which was an Oscar Wilde cock joke, which is just one of those <laughs> intimate little, like, that, yeah, if that, that's probably, I don't know, that's, when, when you're thinking about, you know, doing something like that, it's not going to be a big, grandiose moment. You know what I mean? It's going to be a quiet and intimate. I, but man, I, there's there's just literally too many scenes for me to choose a favorite one other than, I mean, the easy one being the the one, and I'm not saying your choice is easy, but the one take is is brilliant. The, the dinner scene as well. There are so many great line readings in that. We haven't really even talked about um, John Hawks, which please, can we just fucking get it over with and give John Hawks his Oscar already? Because the man is a fucking genius. Um, his relationship with Samara Weaving and the the fact that he comes over to the table, you know, they're there at dinner at the same time it's as Peter so Dinklage and Francis McDormand, and he says, you know, Penelope said something to me that you know all this anger only begets more anger. Peter Dinklage's his Peter his 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 line reading where he said Penelope said begets that floored me. Absolutely, that line reading is perfect when she goes over with the bottle of wine and she's holding it like she's gonna you know go to war with him oh my god and penelope's you know the way that she says you know i yeah i i read it on a bookmark in a book that i was reading about polio yeah, yeah. Polio? No, no no what's the one with horses <laughs> yeah. yeah man there there are too many i i young samara weaving it's i uh, well because now she's such a badass, right? You know, ready or not, you know, she just did Guns Akimbo. Like she now people associate her in a badass kind of field that seeing her in this like cute little like ditzy yeah. role was adorable. I also love in the dinner scene when it, John Hawks first comes over because Peter, Peter Dinklage isn't there. <laughs> fucking uh, Francis McDormand goes, doesn't shit girl have a curfew weeknights? And then he goes, yeah, actually, you know, I was going to take her to the circus, but there's no need. God, Does, so well, he says, does he juggle? I, I love that. I mean, we only get, we only get really two scenes with them, but they, they're the subtext of their marriage. It's, it's all there in those two scenes. It's perfect. You feel like this was a couple that were married and it was an abusive relationship, maybe on both sides. 
I mean, who's who's to say? We know we've seen him be violent, but who knows? Maybe she was as well. Well, no, there had to be. I I I work in education, so I know a lot of stuff about stupid, like, horrible family environments. The re the way like in the first scene that they come together and it just escalates and escalates till he puts his hands on her and she does nothing. She's just like, like this is old hat. Let's let this get over with, right? Um, and then the son puts a knife to his dad's throat. And they're just like, oh, and within two seconds, Samara Weaving comes in, Penelope comes in because she has to go to the bathroom. And just her being there diffuses everything. They're like, oh, moving on. And it's a, again, it's one of these snap changes in the tone that was there where you think someone's going to die. And then it just goes into a, a very, actually a shift of, you can see the love that was between them right after that. They have a moment where he's like, I'm, I, I didn't want this to happen. And then it turns mean again when he says, well, she wanted to come live with me anyway. He went on the attack again. It's a very, um, you can see the love, but then you can see the anger and abuse that's in there. It's very, um, I can't find the right word for it. Where it's it, at the same time terrifying, but also you're like, yeah, those things exist. Like normalizing. It seems normal for them. Sure. You watch it and you're like, well... That seems like a normal exchange between that family. So I'm not I'm not going to answer the the favorite scene that at least too many, but I will say there is a a detail that I love and a detail that I really hate. So firstly, the detail that I really hate, uh, she goes into uh, Angela's bedroom. Oh, I already know. I already know what you're going to do. Yeah, the In Utero In Utero is a Nirvana album that has the song "Rape Me" on it. I think that's a little on the nose. Okay, whatever. I take it or leave it. I think it's it's a little too much. Uh, the detail that I love is Dixon. The only thing that he saves when he dives out the window of the burning police station is Angela's case file. Love that moment. Absolutely love it. Yeah, it's funny. I actually, I in my notes here, I have that 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 moment there that he he saves uh, the case file. Um, that moment that with the, that whole moment of her throwing the 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 Molotov cocktails and him not realizing it until the last one breaks the window open. Um, but him saving I, for whatever reason, it reminded me a lot of uh, in Bruges where Ken is made his way back up to the tower and he's up dropping. Yes. And he's dropping the coins so that the people below him will are, are away. So his body doesn't it's it's, they're not the same at, at all, but like my mind went there and I, I was feeling the totally. same feelings. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's there. Yeah. I've got to ask you both as as actors the the deer scene uh does that does that moment ring true for both of you or does it feel sort of it does it feel uh, artificial isn't the right word contrived is that a contrived moment or do, or does it ring true with both of you I think it would have been contrived if she would think of it as her daughter but when I mean cuz I I think any when I was in the theater and the deer came out you heard an audible from people because the movie had been so heavy beforehand. And then you have this beautiful beer in this meadow and it's nice. Um, I, I think it would have been very contrived because the expectation is for her to go, Oh, it's you. And I'm sorry. And like talk to it as it's her daughter, like reincarnation, but she doesn't instead. She does a very realistic thing and goes, I know you're not her. Um, but she has a lot of, uh, she has so much guilt She's just, she's racked with guilt. I think if she was a good mom and hadn't said, I hope you get raped, yeah. um, 
I, I think this movie would have been very, very different. Um, if she had a good relationship with her daughter, it would have been very different. But again, she has a redemption arc. She's trying to be the hero and she's trying to make up for it. And she's not necessarily doing it the right way. Uh, I would venture to say that maybe the right way would, you know, talking to somebody in therapy and then really talking with her son and trying to be there for him and being a better mom than she was for her daughter. But she's not. Instead, she's doing it her own flawed way. Um, so I don't feel like the deer scene was contrived because of the dialogue that's in it. I don't. Yeah. And I, I don't feel it's contrived it, I, I, a bit after the fact. It does feel a lot like here is your for your consideration moment. Like, here's what we're going to show before we read your name at the Oscars. Um, and that's not her fault or, or even <laughs> McDonough's. It just it, it feels a little bit like that to me. It's also a scene that we're purposely not going to put swearing in so we can play it before your Oscars. <laughs> yeah, those those were the kind of details that I was thinking about. I mean, I, I don't like that she uses the word reincarnation because then it puts it puts it in my head. But I, I do love the line of, uh, you know, she's talking about why the deer is here, why it's it's chosen to be there at that moment. And she's talking about, well, what if there ain't no God and it don't matter what we do to each other? That line just, that's another line that like the, I hope you get raped too, as her daughter leaves. That's the line that just pierces straight through me. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually think this movie has one of the best ending lines in the history of movies where they're driving to go murder this guy who isn't the rapist murderer of her daughter, but alludes, he says that he is, and we learn that he was deployed in Iraq or, again, or Afghanistan, and that it was there that he probably raped and murdered and burnt a girl. Um, but as they're driving to Idaho, she's like, I'm the one who's and he's like, well, who the hell else would it be? And he just accepts it. I'm, and, then, and then that's the end of the movie. You're like, oh, yeah, all right. I accept this as well. Who else would it be, you know? Uh, the, the, and the the little the little tag of uh, you know they're not sure whether they're gonna do it but they they'll decide on the way yeah yeah they'll decide when they get there and I, I we talk about this on the show a lot the ambiguous endings because of Melissa's hatred of ambiguous endings but this is a film that this is a film that fucking earns it this is a film that has done the work to earn that ambiguous ending and and let you do the decision making on the way out the door oh that's a good question you guys think they did it I do. Oh, I a thousand percent think they oh, hate. Oh, yeah. And no what doubt. I think happens is they get there and they're like, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And then they see his face and she recognizes him from throwing the thing at her. And then they then that's what makes her angry again. And then they kill him. A hundred percent. I just I wanted to talk about one one thing that it's actually I get to talk about two things in this. My, my last thing I want to bring up. Um, So I, I listened to Francis Madorma talk about like the creation of her character through through the, the coveralls and through her boots and letting letting the outfit really help sort of um evoke the character of Mildred Um, there. And she but and then she was also talking about she was really inspired by John Wayne performances, particularly in John Ford movies. And there's a moment where she's walking into the police station after Denise has been arrested. And the, a very underrated Carter Burwell score, by the way. She's walking into the police station, and it, the score almost sounds like God's Gonna Cut You Down by Johnny Cash. That moment is the like the most bad, like just her 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 the, her gate, the gate of her walk, her swagger almost, like. If she, if this would have been the old days, she would have fucking kicked the door in, but it's not, but it, just her whole vibe at that moment was so, was so great. Well, 
she would have walked and kicked the door in, and then the first person she saw just a huge haymaker and knock him out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, anything else? Any other lasting uh, comments that you either one of you want to put out there? Um, I think uh, I'm. I always say, um, Ivanek. I, I think choose the scenery whenever he's in it. Every word comes out of his mouth. You're like you really thought about everything your character does. Like he's an actor who has six pages of backstory and how his character got to where he is. Um, and you can see that in all of his interactions. And I love the scene where he calls um, Sam Rockwell, he calls Sam Dixon and he goes, Hey, you have your keys, right? Um, inviting him back. He's like, yeah, we need, we need your keys, but also there's a letter for you. Um, it's, in a way he's, he's saving his own face because he doesn't want people to know that he's talking to Jason Dixon, but then also he, you can tell he's, he actually likes Dixon begrudgingly. He doesn't know why he likes him, but he likes him. Um, so that I like that little, it's a tiny scene, but it shows just these levels of care of uh, relationships within the characters that I really enjoyed. No doubt. No doubt. Well, I, f- I feel like we didn't give any love to Abby Cornish and that's a, that's a damn shame because she has, again, one of the, one of the best moments in the movie. It's hard to know what to do on the day your husband kills yourself. I think she makes an excellent case for thankless role as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's a great, that is a great little moment with, with Mildred in the, um, the gift shop. Yeah. That's a good moment too. And that's the thing. That's why I wanted to read all of those names at the beginning. Because everybody is killing it in this movie. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I think we've reached question time here on 1001 by 1. So Alicia, as our guest, we will start with you. Alicia, do you think that three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri should be in the book? Yes, I think it should. And I also think In Brew should be in there too. Yes, yes. Well, and <laughs> that we, that, well the that, question that, is... The question is: Would you take three billboards out if you want? If you had to have one, do you do you take three billboards out and does In Bruges go in? Wait, hold on, hold on, wait, 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 wait. That's a great. Hold on. So, Ian, do you think three billboards should be in the book? Yes, I do. Okay, I do too. Now, that's a great question. That might be the last thing we discuss. If you had, if only one McDonough could be in the book, is it In Bruges or is it three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri? Well, I, I think I, I think I've said to you before that I think that Three Billboards is his more accessible film. I agree that it's more accessible, but I think as a as a better movie overall, I think In Bruges. I, I think if if I have to only choose one, I would put In Bruges in there because I, I mean, if you guys ever do In Bruges, obviously it's not in the book, but um, <laughs> it it wasn't a previous edition of it. it. Yes, it was. Was. It, yeah, if if you haven't seen it, for anybody who listening, if you haven't seen it, it's um, you'll laugh more than you would when you watch three um, three billboards. I agree. Um, and you will be in awe. I agree of Colin Farrell, um, because I think before I saw In Bruges, because I didn't see them necessarily in order when it just came out. I think I saw him in Daredevil first, and I was like, <laughs> oh, there's a guy. <laughs> um, but then I saw, it and I was like, oh, he's an he can act. Okay. Um, I, I think In Bruges, I, it's just it's it's less accessible, but it, it's not as unaccessible as The Lobster, and people like The Lobster. Oh, so yeah. um, I'm just going with Colin Farrell weird movies. Um, and if well, you also watch- killing of a sacred deer was better than the lobster. That's my hot take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm Karen, Colin Farrell. <laughs> um, but I, I, yeah, I would put in Bruges in, 
Um, I will start talking another hour if we go into in-depth and in Bruges. So I will stop and just say in Bruges instead of Three Billboards. Although I do think Three Billboards should be in the book. I think I I, se- I yeah, second that. Yeah, I think one hundred percent. I think we're at a consensus here about that. Yes, both should be in. But if we had to choose, it would be in Bruges. Um, well, I, I think I've seen in Bruges what I would call an unhealthy <laughs> amount of time. I should be committed for the number of times I've seen in Bruges. We, well, it's a great movie, yeah. um, and it's a crime that it's not in the book. Whoever writes this book, put it in there. Oh, and leave three billboards in there. Yeah, okay. we we. <laughs> Here, the book it really is just the reference for the films that we choose. We're not necessarily big fans with the people in charge of the book. We've we've made our our feelings known on the pod. Now we're looking at movies like The Third Man, Sallow, Birth of a Nation. Get the fuck out of here! I, with that. I think you mean the you meant the you meant the Quiet Man, right? What what did I say? You said the third man, which I think we like the third man. Oh, did I? Oh, I know. I love the third man. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying I'm get so... out to a birth of the nation. Yes. Get out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's enough that. of that shit. Get out. <laughs> well, uh, Alicia, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to talk three billboards and McDonough and just and just to see you again because it's been it's been a long time. It has been. It's been nice to interact with people virtually and see people's faces because um, we've been on lockdown. So, uh self-quarantining and I painted my kitchen so I don't really have anything else to do so this was an easy ask um normally I don't know Adam knows this normally when people ask me to do things I'm like yeah no I'm very picky about stuff that I do um but this was easy I think the email was like do you want to talk about this I was like McDonough yeah I mean I'll 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 do a TED talk if you want (laughs) (laughs) yeah I and I didn't I didn't think I was pushing like uh, stretching the, the the limits of what you know or would want to talk about when I asked so uh, but but yeah, but in all sincerity, thank you for being on the show. It was great to get another insight on this movie. Um, uh, so now we do the whole thing where we talk about where you can find the show. You can find us on Spotify and Stitcher and Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you want to support the show or pick a movie that we talk about, you can support us on Patreon. Um, we're on Facebook and we are on Twitter, those places where we post things. Um, and uh, stay tuned next week. Uh, we're excited because Ian and I are going to start this this thing that's going to lead up into our um, our 100th episode. We are going to do a film from 1920 and celebrate that that anniversary, and then 1930 and 40 and 50 and all the way up to 2010 before we get to our 100th episode. So we'll go decade by decade by decade. We've got some some big movies, some small movies, some movies I've never heard of, like next week's. So that'll be interesting. Um, but until We start this little endeavor decade by decade. I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week.